Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Kalamea. And I'm Amy Gosha. Welcome to The Divorce at Altitude, a podcast on Colorado family law. Divorce is not easy. It really sucks. Trust me, I know. Besides being an experienced divorce attorney, I'm also a divorce client. Whether you are someone considering divorce or a fellow family law attorney, listen in for weekly tips and insight into topics related to divorce, co-parenting, and separation in Colorado. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Divorce at Altitude. I'm Amy Gosha, and I have the pleasure of having Elizabeth Hardman, who is an attorney with our firm. Elizabeth, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Can you give me a little bit of background about yourself, you know, and what areas of law that you practice in? Yeah, definitely. So I went to law school at DU um, here in Denver. And then after I went to law school, I started out as a public defender in Weld County up in Northern Colorado. There I worked in a county court. So working on misdemeanor criminal cases for about nine months. And then I had the opportunity to switch to juvenile, which I had always wanted to do. So I spent the rest of my time there in juvenile, which was really great. Then after the public defender's office, I came here to Kalamea Gosha and have started doing family law as well as criminal defense. So that's kind of brief background. I also did some for anyone who's heard of problem solving courts in the criminal field. When I was a teen, I had worked as a teen attorney and judge representing other teens and kind of like a diversion program. So that's kind of where I, where I got started. And I know one thing I always ask you about, and you get a lot of questions about is you're originally from Alaska. Is that correct? Yes. (laughs) When did you move to Colorado? I moved to Colorado in 2014 for law school. Great. So that's kind of how you ended up here. So today we are talking about juvenile delinquency and how this, I guess, issue might come up in a family law context. Is that correct? Yes. So just tell me, what does juvenile delinquency entail? Yeah. So the juvenile delinquency cases come up when you have a child who's accused of committing an act that if committed by an adult would be a crime. And in Colorado, we're looking at children who are between the ages of 10 and 17, typically. Although there is a Senate, or excuse me, a House bill pending right now. I think it's House Bill 22-1131 that is talking about actually increasing the minimum age to 13. So that's in progress right now. But yeah, juvenile courts, it's really, it's civil in nature. Um, That's what the courts say, have said traditionally. But over the years, there have been a lot of cases that have kind of recognized its quasi-criminal nature. And so we've seen a lot of protections come about in the juvenile space to kind of balance what's in the best interest of the children in the juvenile case, but also they're taking into consideration kind of the safety and best interests of the community. And if there's a named victim, the named victim. That gives us a good kind of general overview. Can you tell me about, you know, who are the players or, you know, like within the system, within the juvenile delinquency system? Yeah. So juvenile delinquency court is, if you were to walk into a courtroom, it almost looks like a mixture between an adult criminal case and probably a DNM case. You have a lot of the traditional players in the adult criminal cases. So you've got the defense attorney, 
who represents the child's stated interest, what they say they want in the case, the district attorney or the prosecution who represents the state of Colorado and is trying to prosecute. Of course, you have the judge, but in juvenile cases, you also have a magistrate who usually oversees the proceedings from the outset. They just can't do the jury trial if there's going to be a jury trial. So aside from kind of those those more general what you'd expect in the courtroom from the adult criminal case, you also have the DHS caseworker possibly. DHS isn't always involved in a juvenile case, but if there is a family or a child that particularly needs resources, like the family's coming in and telling the magistrate, you know, my kiddo's running away all the time or is really struggling in school anything like that, then the judge might say, okay, we need to get DHS involved to figure out what's going on and try to support the family. You and I wrote a Colorado Lawyer article um, that was published in February, um, and it was about the intersection of dependency and neglect cases as well as juvenile delinquency, correct? Right. So that's interesting to hear that, you know, a Department of Human Services, I guess, would it be a caseworker that could be part of the juvenile delinquency court? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a caseworker. Yeah, so it sounds like, I mean, I don't do DNNs, but it sounds like from talking with you and and other people, it sounds like their role is quite similar between the DNN and the the juvenile court. I think probably one difference is in juvenile court, the court might also get DHS involved to perform an out-of-home placement evaluation. So sometimes if you do have a kiddo who's running away all the time or maybe is mixed up with substance use, DHS will perform an evaluation for kind of a risk level almost. They'll see what facility a juvenile might be able to go into instead of their home, kind of in the interim while the case is pending. And one question, just because I'm thinking about it, is within the juvenile delinquency process, I know that it's different, but I worked in a juvenile center in Nebraska when I was in college, and I would report to the criminal judge about how certain kids were doing, you know, on, it might have been a diversion program, but does that happen similarly in Colorado? Will you have people from the juvenile delinquency centers who will come into the juvenile court? Does that happen? Do you have, like, how do courts get status updates on how juveniles are doing once they're sentenced. Is that the correct term? Yeah. Once they're sentenced, you know, as a defense attorney, I'm not as involved after the sentencing happens, but leading up to that point, it's really a mixture of people, right? You've got the parents in the courtroom. So the judge or the magistrate asks questions from the parents as how, as far as how things are going, the DHS caseworker, if one is involved, You also can have CASA volunteers, like what you've referenced for the DNN court. You also have the guardian ad litem. You have a a ton of people who can get involved in the case to report back. And it's not mentioned in the article, but also what I've seen is when we have kids who are involved in mental health treatment or other, other activities like that, at least the magistrate that I was primarily in front of really liked to have updates when possible. Granted, you know, you have to waive a privilege to to get to that point. So it just kind of varies. But yeah, there's there are a lot of resources you, the, the magistrate pulls from. Yeah, to get sources of information. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. 
Well, is there anything else related to kind of the players before we move on to the process? I think that's pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. Great. Well, let's give our listeners kind of the lay of the land. You know, if there's a, if they have a child that is involved in a juvenile delinquency proceeding, generally, can you talk about how that looks? Yeah. So there are a couple of different, if I'm doing broad strokes here, some juveniles might get arrested from the outset of the case. If that happens, then they usually go to a detention facility They'll get screened and their parents will get contacted. And when I say screened, it's kind of asking questions about their schooling or their background and and still kind of assessing risk and what supports are in in place for the kiddo. And then the first court appearance that that kid would have is a detention hearing. And so that's kind of the very first time you're in front of the judge trying to figure out, does it make sense for this child to be released, whether that is to, you know, a parent, both parents, a relative, or whether, you know, the kid needs to be detained until there's some other placement available for him, her, him or her. And I think one thing to note there is when a court's determining whether to release a juvenile, the court has to impose the least restrictive setting. So there's ideally the idea is that there's the kid's not going to be just be in detention all the time, um, they're going to hopefully get released because it, there are a ton of studies that have shown just how detrimental it can be for a kid to, to remain in detention, even for a short period. So for, for other kids who don't get arrested right away, their first court appearance will be an advisement. And so that's where the court will tell the juvenile, you know, here's what the acts, the delinquent acts are that you're facing. Here's the possible penalty also advising the juvenile of their right to an attorney, everything like that. That's also a time when the juvenile might want to request a guardian ad litem to be put on the case. That's in a situation where maybe parents aren't around or are not really involved and they just kind of need that extra support. Yeah. And then after the advisement hearing for more serious juvenile cases, you can have a preliminary hearing. That's pretty rare um, in juvenile cases, but that focuses on whether or not there's probable cause to move the case forward. Right. And then from there, I mean, it's pretty, you know, you have status hearings as needed and eventually you can have a trial if you want or, or not. And in juvenile cases, you're usually looking at a bench trial or a trial before the judge or a magistrate, um, depending on the circumstances. Most juveniles don't have the ability to have a jury trial. It's it's quite rare. Um, if they do have an ability to have a jury trial, does it depend? Like, is it six or twelve, or is it just so rare? It's really rare, and I'm blanking off the top of my head. I want to say it's six, but I think it actually depends on what the basis for them being able to have a jury trial. One of them might actually only be three. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. I guess one thing I keep thinking about is, you know, I don't practice criminal defense whatsoever, but we hear the term of art, like a problem solving court, right? Within the criminal context. Is there such a thing within the juvenile court? There isn't as far as the jurisdictions that I am familiar with. There's diversion, 
which can be, yep, which can be addressed usually at the initial advisement. Usually the district attorney would come up and say, hey, I think this kiddo is a good candidate for this. Or the defense attorney might might bring it up after reading through the case. But yeah, I, I, my understanding is that that's handled kind of differently from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But yeah, I mean, in Alaska, right, where, where I grew up, that was the problem solving court was kind of a special diversion program that would make it so these kids would go into almost be essentially be judged and represented by their peers. So it was supposed to kind of provide some support that way and also pave the way for people like me who wanted to help. Right. No, that's great. We've talked a little bit about, you know, just the process and proceedings. Let's talk about how can this type of an issue come up in a family law case that you have seen or you've thought about? Yeah. So I think from the outset, if, you know, I have a case in family law or if anyone has a family law case where they hear about one of the children being in a juvenile delinquency proceeding, I think like right away, that should be a red flag to the family law attorney that maybe, you know, maybe there's a need for a CFI or a PRE, some sort of parenting expert in the family law case. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what I've seen in the juvenile world is that the children's behaviors are a product of their home environment. It could be something as simple as them not receiving the attention that you know, they want or need from a parent, or it could be something a lot more serious. Like you have a parent who has their own really bad substance use issues, or maybe there's abuse in the home, but it's definitely something I think if, if you, you hear about that, it's something worth investigating. So either, you know, if you need to be protective, need to pursue some sort of motion to restrict, or if you need to kind of prepare to defend your client against what's coming. That's what I was thinking. Even when I worked at the juvenile center in Nebraska, I mean, a lot of the kids that I would counsel or talk to, you know, a lot of their truancy issues came from just the, their home environment and issues with it. So when you're talking about a family law case and you're representing a parent, an allocation of parental responsibilities matter, divorce case, and that's happening. I think as the attorney, you have to really think like, what is going on in that home to figure out, like you said, if an expert is needed or to figure out how to get the support that the parent needs. Like, do you need to hire, you know, like a parenting coach? Do you need to, you know, like you said, are there issues going on with the parent, such as substance abuse or whatnot? You know, so that's super important. You know, I think it also raises the question of does the child need an independent voice, like the CLR, a child's legal representative, because maybe they're, they just need someone else to confide in. Right, exactly. And we see that come up in our cases. It's, you know, like you see it here and there, it's not as prominent, but, you know, I think a family law attorney sometimes forget that they can request for a CLR on behalf of the children. Right. Yeah. One question I have, and maybe you're going to cover this, is if there's a pending juvenile case, you know, and you have an expert, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the issues related to what information you can get from the juvenile case that go to the, that would go to the child expert? Yeah, it's a tough balancing act with that. 
certainly, you know, as a family law attorney, you're representing your client's interests and what they want. But I think it's really important at the same time to really stress to them to focus on what's in the best interest of their children. There might be a rush to try to get as much information as possible from their child or from people like mental health providers. But, and I think that's fair within reason. You obviously want to be informed, but they need to be just cognizant of what's going to cause harm to the children or to the child. So for example, you know, I think it's a good idea to keep up to date with what's going on in the juvenile court. I definitely think you want to open up interaction between yourself and any of the players in the juvenile court. You can make sure that everything's fluid. And I think you can also, to some extent, you know, maybe you can request information or get information regarding what is claimed to have happened. So police reports, that kind of information. But I think where you want to be really careful is a parent should not be talking to their child about what happened in the criminal case. It's not necessarily protected or it's not protected. Um, there's very limited circumstance when the child make a, makes the statement to their parent in front of the, the defense attorney. That's protected, but that's it. Um, so if a child and parent are just talking, that makes all of the child's statements subject to disclosure at a trial or to the prosecution, and it can have some really serious ramifications for the child. Another piece is, and I think we see this in DR anyway, is trying not to invade the child's mental health sessions too much because you still want that flow of information from the child to the therapist so they can get the treatment that they need without feeling like it's then going to be broadcast or used by one of their parents against the other. Right. Yeah. We see that a lot with therapists because you want kids to feel like they have a safe space, right? Right. Talk about what's going on and for the therapist to actually provide the services that's needed to help them. Yeah. That's really interesting. One question I do have is with criminal cases, if like a client is involved, like if there is a criminal case or say that there's been like criminal endangerment charge for children, sometimes I'll try to talk to the district attorney, you know, on the matter to figure out what's going on with the disposition of the case. There's so many players, it sounds like within the juvenile system, just knowing all of the players as a family law attorney, who should be one of the first people that you contact? Yeah, that's a good question. I might be biased because I am a criminal defense attorney, but I do think it makes the most sense to talk to the criminal defense or the the juvenile defense attorney first, just because obviously they're representing the child. There might be some stuff that that attorney cannot speak to the family law attorney about, but at least the defense attorney can give some general information about, you know, why certain information needs to be protected or what can be disclosed. I think the prosecution is fine as far as if you're, if there's some sort of release or you can get information about police reports, but generally speaking, it's best to try to protect the child's statements or statements surrounding what happened to the fullest extent. Yeah. And that makes sense. And just to clarify, when I would contact the district attorney, it was mainly when there was a criminal case regarding the other, you know, the other parent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking of 
the opposite situation. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And thinking about that, like you don't really have those two situations because there's two parents and there's only, you know, like those two parents have joint children. So that makes sense why the recommendation would be to protect the statements and to talk to the defense attorney. Yeah. Well, what other situations do you see or could you see where there would be this intersection between juvenile issues and the family, family law cases? Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, there's obviously in the family law cases, a lot of the decisions that need to be made by the court or agreements entered into between the parties center on the best interests factors under Colorado law. And so those, those I think will come into play a lot when you're looking at the juvenile case. And so it makes sense to try to, I guess, really focus on what the key issues are for the child in the juvenile case and make sure that you incorporate those concerns into any agreement that you make or make sure that the judge is aware of what's going on in the juvenile case, whether it's a mandatory protection order or some other unique situation that needs to be accounted for in the orders. I think it's really important to have that continuity between the the two courtrooms because otherwise it just causes confusion for everyone involved. You don't want to end up in a situation where a mandatory protection order is getting violated in the juvenile case because that could result in more charges. That's really important. One other question I have that's probably, well, to me, I have this question and probably parents have this question is if their child is involved in a juvenile case or charge, do they have a right to an attorney or how does that work? Yes. Good question. So the kiddo does have the right to an attorney and it's actually interesting. What I've seen a lot is you have parents who are almost resistant to the idea of getting an attorney. But it's important to remember in this context, like the juvenile is the one who holds that right. So even in a situation where a parent doesn't want an attorney involved, if the child expresses a desire to have one, then the court will appoint one. And because they're children, they usually don't have money to pay for their own attorney unless their parents are willing to help. So they are able to have the public defender's office represent them, which is great. Yeah, no, that's really important. And then just to touch on this, so I'm clear, does the attorney-client, obviously the attorney-client privilege is between the the juvenile and their defense attorney. How does that work with parents? Does it extend to parents as well if they're in the, I guess, in the conversation when the juvenile is meeting with the attorney? Yeah, so it's tricky. Kind of like I was mentioning before, the Privilege between, like, there's a parent-child privilege, and that is very, very narrow to the circumstance where a juvenile is saying something to their parent in front of the defense attorney. But everything else is not protected. And so I do have it as a policy, generally, where from the outset, I don't have parents in the room when I'm talking to their child about what is going on. It just, I think, first, it protects the child's statements. But second... As people with children probably know, there are times when children, I think, can be intimidated or scared about what their parents might think as far as what they did. So they might not be forthright with me. And that makes my job really hard if I'm you know, working on a set of facts that isn't true and I don't understand the kid's real exposure. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, any, I guess, advice to parents 
you know, it sounds like one of the number one things is if their child is involved in a juvenile matter that they should have their child get an attorney. Yes, that is, I say that's number one. I think there are, yeah, I think if your child is being accused of committing some sort of act, don't allow them to talk to the police. There's no need to be rude about it or anything, but you can just politely say that you're declining to speak to the police until you have an attorney and then get an attorney and go from there. But yeah, I just think it's it's natural inclination, especially when you're a parent to want to know exactly what happened to be able to, you know, either address the issue or maybe have the child come forth and and admit to what happened so that they're taking responsibility. But I think a lot of parents don't understand how serious juvenile consequences can be. So it's it's best to just hold off, wait until you can get an attorney, and then they can advise further. Well, great. Thank you, Liz, for this wonderful information. I know it can get complicated when you have a juvenile issue going on with a pending family law matter. So I appreciate your time today. Yes, Um, Amy, thank you for having me. Yeah. And then just for our listeners, you know, if they had further questions just about, you know, juvenile delinquency issues, how can they reach you? Yeah. So they can reach me at my email is Elizabeth at Kalamea.law. They can also give me a call. My phone number is 970-775-8955. Great. Well, fabulous. Thank you for for coming on today. And we will hopefully see you again as another expert guest on this podcast. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Ryan again. Thank you for joining us on Divorce at Altitude. If you found our tips, insight, or discussion helpful, please tell a friend about this podcast. For show notes, additional resources, or links mentioned on today's episode, visit divorceataltitude.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Many of our episodes are also posted on YouTube. You can also find Amy and me at Kalamea.law or 970-315-2365. That's K-A-L-A-M-A-Y-A dot law.